Are you ready to start living richer? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Live Richer podcast, hosted by Jamie Catmull, a podcast created for people to challenge and manage their ideas of wealth, culture, and money across the world, bringing you the best personal finance advice to make more, save more, and live richer. Now, here's your host, Jamie Catmull. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Live Richer podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with John, who's a huge guy on TikTok right now. It's called John's Finance Tips, and he gives some of the best tips out there that you could ever receive. If it be about travel, it'd be about investing, it'd be about getting a raise, you name it. John is an expert, and he's giving tips in an entertaining way. When he was just 26 years old, John actually had, how many points did you have, John? Had accumulated and spent at that point about a million points in miles. A million points in miles. So as you can see, John was an expert when it comes to getting points. And he gives tips on how to do that and how to travel and do the things that we all want to do, like um, get, a, get rent for free. I saw one of those TikTok videos. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And some mistakes people make when they buy a home and a lot of other really interesting tips. He's killing it not only on TikTok, but also on YouTube as well, and all platforms when it comes to sharing his advice. So John, thanks for coming on. And hopefully we can learn more from you today. And you can tell my audience some great ways that they can fight inflation if possible, and how you're retiring by 40 and how they can retire by 40. I mean, you are a guy that's doing so much. I heard you even have a full-time job. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Jamie, thank you so much for having me on, onto the podcast. I'm super excited to be connecting with you and obviously your audience today um, into having this conversation. And however I can help, any tips, tricks, hacks, I'm happily to share it today. So the one thing you talk about is the money illusion. And I really liked that the tips and things you talked about there. And I was wondering if maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about what the money illusion is that so many of us have. You want to take from there, John? Yeah, the money illusion, it, it's such an interesting concept in behavioral economics. Um, and it's kind of this concept that we as humans have a poor conception of inflation. And what I mean by that is we temp typically like to kind of anchor our views of kind of money or wealth to a point in time. And kind of in that TikTok video, I kind of talk about by doing that, though, you are kind of doing yourself a disservice because, for example, uh, I think the example that I used was, at what point did audience, what, did you think $100,000 was a lot of money? Now, objectively, it's a lot of money, but for a lot of us, it might have been when we were growing up, maybe in high school, maybe early on in college, where we thought, you know, if we make this figure, let's arbitrarily call it the six figures, we've made it. But we never actually adjust that goal for inflation. And what I mean by that is in the year 2005, $100,000 in 2005 is worth about $147,000 today. So think about that for a minute. 147 but but when folks kind of get to today and they've hit the 100k mark, they think, "Oh, like I've kind of made it. I've I've hit the goal." And again, objectively, that's still a great goal to hit, but you have failed to account for inflation that your dollar is worth less year over year. And so by not adjusting, you end up behind. And now, obviously, people are going to say, well, $100,000 
is arguably a ton of money. You know, if I could make that, that would be phenomenal. And I say, absolutely. However, it works against the consumer because companies, right, kind of over time are able to pay less because we are not adjusting our goals for inflation. We are anchored to this one point in time. And so that's kind of the whole concept of the money illusion that when you think about your salary, you should and really try to keep in tune to adjust it with inflation. And so therefore, you know, you still have the same purchasing power as you would have had 10, 15, 20 years ago. Otherwise, you end up behind. And kind of to really uh, kind of bring the point home, 60, I think $68,000 today, um, sorry, $100,000 today would have been equal to about 68,000 back in 2005 adjusted for inflation. So you kind of see like, you've kind of made it by that monetary measure. But if you're thinking about the purchasing power of 100,000 back in 2005, you would still behind hopefully that that made sense I, I know it's a little bit complex of a topic but you know I, I think it's it's incredibly important that we have a very good understanding of inflation and of purchasing power because you know if we don't then we end up behind right we obviously there's always conversations about the wealth gap and how do you bridge the wealth gap and there's a growing divide and there's a million different reasons as to why that's occurring but i think one thing that we can do as consumers is to really understand year over year our money is losing value and so our monetary and wealth goals should also adjust for the infl for inflation. Yeah, like one thing you said on one of the videos was how the person went in and they asked for a raise, right? And the guy says, well, we'll give you a 5% raise and how that actually was not enough according to inflation. They go, no, you gave me a decrease. I really like thinking about that because I think that happens to a lot of us. We think, hey, we're doing great. We got this great job. But with inflation being at, what is it, 8% eight, eight or is it 9% right now? Yeah, like 8.6 was the year over year, 8.6 8 or 8.3, yeah. Right, and so that's where we're at. And then people aren't getting a raise, so every year you're not doing good. You're doing worse year after year after year if you're not getting that raise. And yes. I personally, from my own personal experience, did not think about it that way. And I didn't realize that I am losing money. I am not getting more money or even staying in the same spot. And I think it's because of that mindset that back in 2005, I was thinking if I made a certain amount, then I'm, I'm doing great. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that's no, Jamie, it's more like you're making $60,000 now. You know, <laughs> I just don't exactly. think we really realize that. And I think that's something that we all need to realize when we're negotiating our, how much we're going to make or what we're looking to make when we're out there job hunting or even at our current job. Absolutely. I, I thought it was a great point. Yeah. It, it also compounds, right? Because let's say this year, if we annualize inflation to 8.3%, you got only a 2% raise. Okay. So you're making, you're, you're making less. Next year comes around, even if inflation next year, let's say was 2%, you got a 2% raise, you are still behind, right? Because it kind of compounds against you. Like you are always going to be behind. And so that's why it's just so crucial for everyone to be thinking about it in those terms and especially in today's job market where there are options and you can demand i think more aggressive um pay pay increases you can look externally to jobs because it, again it's kind of like compounding interest right it's, we have a, we as humans have a very difficult time conceptualizing compounding interest but also this idea of i guess a compounding decrease in pay is kind of similar <laughs> if you're constantly underpaid and it's going this way like yeah so <laughs> And, and, and you have a job, so you've had experience in this, 
Very, yes, very much so. Yeah, so I still work. So obviously creating content is something I do um, on the side, outside of working hours, um, but I still work a, a nine to five job um, in, in the tech sector. So, yeah. So have you used your own advice when it comes to getting paid? Yeah, um, so absolutely. So I've actually advocated for myself when it comes to uh, inflation adjustment raises, right? Up until this year, because this year I actually did a swap internally to a different line of business. So I mm -hmm. ended up getting a pay bump. But prior to that, I would make sure to have conversations with my managers of whenever we are having conversations on raises, like, hey, also, we have to metric this against what the CPI is. And I would say up to this year, it was fine. But this year, though, a lot of organizations were giving a standard two to 3% inflation adjustment, yet inflation is three to four X larger than that. So yeah, I mean, I think I, I lucked out this year by doing a job switch. And so I obviously, you know, kind of statistics always show whenever you switch roles, you're always going to get a much larger bump than if you were to stay in a, in a company. And so at a 10 to 15% bump versus just sticking around and getting an inflation adjustment. You know, that's a good point for the people that like to stay at a place for a long period of time. You may actually be losing out on money because you're like you're telling people right now that moving and mm -hmm. statistically people who move jobs end up making more money than those who just stay in the same company for 20 years. Yeah. They maybe miss out on those opportunities. I, I honestly didn't even think about that. I'm such a loyalist. I've been somewhere for 10 years. So I'm like, hmm, I need to be thinking about what John's saying here. So, you know, another thing that I really wanted to talk to you about was early retirement. You're a huge advocate for it and you yourself are trying to do it by the time you're 40. What are some things you're doing? Yeah. So prior to, I would say for everybody today, it's an interesting time that we are in, um, especially if I think about what I'm doing now, which is creating content, right? The, the creator economy is absolutely in full swing. And right now, if you're not creating content, you should look to create content because it has it, it ex significantly accelerated my ability and timeline to hit that goal of retiring by 40 just on the revenue generated from creating content. That's one piece. But outside of that piece, before 2021, before I started creating content, um, my objective to hit my retirement goals was always through real estate. I think real estate is just such an incredible accelerator of wealth. It is something that I mean, just from tax, right, you've got tax advantages, you're going to, you're gaining equity, you're growing your net worth, and obviously the cash flow from the properties and the appreciation. I mean, real estate's such a powerful vehicle, especially in the United States, you get in with a 30-year fixed mortgage um, to be able to accelerate your, your, your wealth and obviously um, hitting the retirement goals. So prior to creating content, it was always real estate. It was as accumulate as much real estate as quickly as possible. Um, to hit kind of, you know, the magic number, if you will, before the age of 40. Um, but now with content creation added in, that's definitely accelerated that timeline by, its, I would say, three, maybe even four years, which is incredible and something that if I go back before 2021, I would have never thought. I would have thought, John, you're going to be working your nine to five, which is great, but also you want to get out of this rat race. So you're going to use real estate as your vehicle to early retirement. And then now that I've since started creating content, that has just kind of changed the whole scope of things. So I would say for audience members out there, right? If we think about people, I get comments all the time, like, hey, how, how do I gain wealth? How do I make more? How do I get wealthy? Um, you know, should I be investing this, investing that? And I always say, we can only save so much. And if you want to invest, absolutely. 
but $1,000 is only going to get you so far versus having 10 or even 100,000. And in order to get additional, uh, additional capital, you need to find additional streams of income, right? You have to pick up side hustles. You have to look at how else can I add to this pool? Or, I mean, the other option is always to look externally at different jobs where you can get a five, 10, 15% pay bump. But yeah, in terms of like getting to kind of the early retirement goal, uh, the more income streams that you can pull in and bring in, uh, the more attainable it is, right? And obviously you can shorten your timeline to getting there. So how, how many income properties do you own and how, how young were you when you started? And did you follow your advice about the free rent? That's what I wanted to know. Did you go in and get your friends say, hey, do you want me to get us a place to rent? and not tell them that you were buying the place and then have them come in. Was that fake or was that real? I mean, did you really do that? I would have loved to do that. Um, so I, so um, I bought my first property in 2020, uh, two family. So we lived in the bottom unit and then we rented out the top unit to an amazing family. And so that cut our rental costs to, I think, 200 bucks, 200 bucks a person. It was myself and, and my girlfriend. I, di I didn't charge her rent. Um, <laughs> oh, you're nice. You're I was really nice. nice. I didn't charge. So I could have. If I charged the rent, I would have been net positive cash flow. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so I bought that first property. And then, and then this year we turned around and then got a second multifamily property, kind of exact same situation. Uh, we just got it rented upstairs, actually. And then downstairs, we're living in, it'll be about $400 per person out of pocket. Um, and then that's kind of, kind of the goal, right? I mean, it's just one property a year, kind of a multifamily owner. So you kept, so did you keep the other property? Is it, uh, so you kept the other one and yep, you have yep. renters in the whole thing now, and then you went and bought in your second property that you're in. Yep. Yep. So the other one is fully stabilized. It's about $1,200 a month cash flow, which is incredible. So that's obviously taking out. And especially if folks, if you're interested in real estate, make sure you account for variable expenses. So that's saving things like CapEx. So like if big things go wrong, like your furnaces or roofs, saving things for variable, ex variable expenses. Um, if you need to get a plumber or electrician in there, and then obviously you want to save a little bit for vacancy. So with fixed expenses, which is your mortgage, interest, all that, and then variable expenses, it's about 12 ish, 12, 1300 a month in positive cash flow on that one, which is again, right? When we talk about early retirement, we want to add additional revenue streams. Um, so yeah, that one's fully stabilized, fully rented, looking good. So, what sparked this mindset and why was retiring early important to you? I always like to ask people that, you know, a lot of personal finance experts, they always want to retire early. And I was wondering, what was your motivation? Yeah, it's, it's the realization that when you're in your corporate job, and listen, I have to thank my corporate job for a lot because it affords you your salary, right? It affords you benefits, but you're always kind of making money for someone else. It's kind of this monotonous nine to five grind that you're going out and, and you are generating revenue for somebody else's company. And kind of for me, it's like, well, is there kind of a better way? Like, how do I get my time back? I am an avid scuba diver, love scuba diving. My girlfriend and I both advanced open water certified. We were able to log about a hundred dives before kind of COVID kicked in. And that's an activity we love. We love to travel. That's amazing. And it's just, but especially in the American system, because she's from Australia and they have just way better kind of PTO policies, but in the American system, you get about 15 to 20 days a year where you get time off and the rest is just, you're here to generate corporate profits, which there's nothing against it. Hey, listen, we've had a raging bull market though. You know, things are pulling back a little bit, nothing against that. But however, is there another version of this life that I am living today where I can go and dive, I can go and travel? Um, 
things I'm passionate about, environmental uh, conservation. And kind of the way to get there is financial independence. And so when I say retire early, it's the retire early in the sense that I am not tied to any particular income stream, right? Not the I'm kicking back on the beach for the rest of your life because I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that philosophy because you're basically kind of sub by doing that, um, there's really not much interest there, right? I mean, I feel like I'm always going to be wanting to do something. So the retire early is getting out of this kind of corporate rat race where you're contributing to the overall corporate profits of some other entity and kind of generating revenue for yourself so that you can buy back your time to be able to do what it is that, that you enjoy. Do you use any tools or anything to manage your money or what are some tips? Like, do you have any tricks on that to see where your goal is? And do you have a number when it means Hey, I can retire. Yeah. So, uh, well, what's one like really how good many one. millions do you need, John? What do you yeah. need? <laughs> it, it, it's or, a straight, it's a straightforward number. It's 10 million and we're good. That's it. That is, that is the number. Um, I kind of plucked it out of there. We kind of did a, we kind of sat down and thought, okay, if we were at our most extravagant, what would, what would be the expenses that we would need? And then kind of mid tier and then low end and then average it all back using a 4% rule. Uh, that's the number we arrived at. And so that is like, that's just net worth, right? Obviously tied into both real estate and then as well as in the equities market as well. And you talk about net worth a lot too. You just brought that up. So I was thinking, how does someone, what is net worth? Can you explain that to people? And how can someone kind of know what their net worth is? Yeah, net worth, assets minus liabilities, right? And there's different schools of thought whether you should be calculating your home's equity into your net worth because there's an argument, well, how easily can you tap into that? But at a very high level, it is what are your assets minus your liabilities? So assets, um, largely for a lot of folks, are probably your 401k, so that's your retirement account, your brokerage accounts. Um, some people, again, when they want to add in their home's equity, you can do that and then take out your liabilities. So student loans, obviously, if you're adding your, your home's equity, you would add your mortgages, and that gets you to your net worth number. And I think that's typically a better measure of wealth than just what someone's salary is because you know your net worth for things like a 401k or a brokerage account i think that says more than how much money you are pulling in every year from a salary basis because you know you make one or two hundred thousand you spend one or two hundred thousand you're kind of at net zero whereas if you have a very large nest egg a very large retirement portfolio a really large real estate portfolio that gets you i think much further um wealth wise than it would be just having an overall high salary and I think that's really important for people to keep in mind, right? Oftentimes when you're talking to folks who have a high net worth, but maybe not a lot in the bank, that doesn't really matter because money in the bank, I would also argue, is kind of not doing much for you because it's kind of getting inflated away. Um, that money should be put to work in some sort of asset, largely for me, it's real estate or into a uh, brokerage account. Okay. I think that's really great. Like some of those things you said are great advice for people when it comes to managing their net worth. I believe there was a study that was sent over to me by... I think it might've been personal capital actually, that 35% of people weren't even aware or even kind of knew what net worth was, which was super surprising. And I think if you don't know that, then maybe they're not even preparing for retirement. I mean, that's the scary thought is to think that there's not a lot of people that are even preparing for when they are ready to retire. And that's why it's so important. People like you, John, you're going out there telling people and helping them and trying to get them to save money and 
lots of places. I mean, you're even teaching people how to get free stuff at McDonald's, yeah. how to get your, you know, you name it, you're, you're teaching people how to do it so that they can reach those money goals that they have. What out of all your videos is the most popular? Oh, that's a good one. I, I, I would say probably between there's one talking about diamonds, which is really interesting. Diamonds. diamonds I, it's one of Why my earlier diamonds? ones. I didn't, I didn't know you were talking about diamonds. Yes. John. <laughs> Di- I know. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of things on there. Diamonds. Okay. That was one of my early, early ones. And this one is kind of core to my message um, of my, of audience members is that we got to think a little bit differently, right? About what is, I don't know, just, just think a little bit differently about what is generally accepted in society. I know that seems very broad, but here's what I mean by that. So the diamond industry, uh, De Beers are a massive, massive company, and they control about anywhere 70 at 1.90% of the world's diamond supply. And they were founded, they're a Belgian company founded in the 1800s. And you might, this is a fun fact, you might not know it. When it comes to gemstones, diamonds are one of the most common gemstones found in in the earth yeah like if you want to give someone a rare gemstone you would look for a sapphire an emerald or a ruby diamonds i don't want to say they're a dime a dozen but in the world of gemstones they're a dime a dozen however we have a perception that diamonds are rare and expensive because De beers controls their vertically integrated mines manufacturing processing marketing sales and so they kind of at a very high level constrict the supply of diamonds. They only release a certain set. And then there's a huge marketing engine behind it to market diamonds as this luxury good. And so it's so interesting because I you know I, I talked to a friend who's a jeweler and he's like, yeah, like they're diamond dozen, like they're literally everywhere. But because the supply is so constricted, you can kind of right artificially inflate the price. Now, another point to that, uh, before the 1940s, when a man proposed to a woman, um, it wasn't really that common to propose with a diamond engagement ring. Typically, those of the upper class would use something like a sapphire or, or I think it was emeralds to propose. In the 40s and 50s, De Beers, I think along with, I forget what the other organization was, started a marketing campaign where, yeah, like we should be proposing with diamond rings. Like quite literally, if you go back to the early 1900s, like we were not proposing with diamond rings. And it was this marketing engine that came out and said, this is how a man does it. And then the marketing slogan with Tiffany, right? A diamond is a girl's best friend marketing one-on-one. I think De Beers was behind that as well. I mean, it is just so fascinating when you look back and it's like, wait a minute, this is the most common gemstone. It's really not that rare. I have been convinced by society that I need to use a diamond ring to engage because of, what? Oh, okay. De Beers. Um, So that was like probably my most common video because then I kind of juxtapose it to, well, what about lab diamonds. Well, if you know anything about what a diamond is, it's just a carbon lattice, right? It's just a bunch of carbon lattices. And so a lab made diamonds are also at a molecular level, a carbon lattice. And so at a molecular level, you can't tell the difference between what is a lab created diamond. I'm not talking about moissanite. Moissanite is a different, a slightly different carbon structure. I'm talking about a carbon lattice that is a diamond and a natural carbon lattice that is a diamond. If you can't tell that, then why would you pay 50 to 70% more for this natural piece of carbon, whereas this is also carbon? And so that video, I think, got a lot of views because it just kind of was like, huh, now that is really interesting. Why, why, if at the end of the day, carbon is carbon is carbon at the molecular level, because why? De Beers, from a marketing perspective, have convinced us it's a luxury good, it's rare, and this is what you give a girl because it's a girl's best friend and all of that. So... Yeah, diamonds.
That is a really good point. I did not even think about it. And the fact that the marketing could be so powerful that has convinced people that they have to have that. And if you don't, if you've ever given another gem other than a diamond, that guy's a cheapskate or something. When in reality, he's giving you a more rare piece of jewelry than the one in the diamond. And then if he wants to, if he wanted, he could just go and get the lab diamond. And exactly. it's just as good. Literally, it's just as good as the other diamond. It's just marketing. And the, what is it? The beers you said? The said beers, it, yeah. Said it was not. So, oh my goodness. That is crazy. I wonder how many other things we're being fooled about. Yeah, ton, I mean, the, the, the most interesting one too about that is, uh, I'll, last one on diamonds and we'll, we'll move on, is um, there's a diamond that's marketed that they call them chocolate diamonds, right? And if we think about kind of what makes a diamond supposedly worth more, it's that it's clear, right? It's a bunch of other C's, but clarity is one of them. Yeah. And so they start marketing this chocolate diamond. And I was like, chocolate diamond? So you, you read a little bit more into it. No, a chocolate diamond is just a dirty diamond that they would have otherwise used into an industrial drill that now they've now marketed as, oh, it's a chocolate diamond. It's like, it's brown, it's stained. No, like that would have actually just gone into industrial drills for machinery. Like that to me is the kind of the ultimate. Are they wow. charging more for that? I don't Do you know, know, but it's definitely more than what they would put into a drill bit. So it's just, yeah, like all the color diamonds are not really, I mean. Yeah, that's tainted. what I thought. Clarity was supposed to be, yeah. you know, the more clear the diamond is and all that. It's supposed to be more valuable. But then they turn around and they're like, hey, you know what? We could trick these people. Yeah, that's we it. We will just tell them because they believe whatever they hear. And, you know, enough people promote it online. You know, we get enough influencers and celebrities to purchase this and tell them it's very valuable because we put a huge price tag on it. I mean, basically, that's it. People yeah. think if there's a huge price tag on something, then it's valued really weird <laughs> yeah yeah it's exactly as if the price attributes any value to it but kind of you peel back the layers of it and it's like mm. i mean if we want to go all the way back to right like kind of a video i talk about and again i think different again different people are going to have different things that they enjoy um having right some folks enjoy like cars some people like designer bags that's totally fine but there's an there's an element of i know kind of i do preach this message to my audience like why is it that you want that XYZ brand? Is it more for you internally or are you trying to message out something externally? And sometimes we get caught up in the, we need to show others that we are at this measurable level of success. And I think that is a slippery slope for a lot of folks because then it's the, I, I'm getting designer this and I'm upgrading my car for that and my house is bigger so I can tell my friends. And, and that's a very slippery slope because at what point is kind of enough enough to show that you have succeeded and could you not actually just look more internally of, hey, man, of, hey, I've have all of this by every measure I have succeeded as opposed to I need the designer this or the designer that. Um, that I think that's very important. Is that the video, John, that you call the designer lie? Yes. I, that's the one. Because it, it actually has a lot of views. How many views does that one have? Oh, I don't know. A couple million maybe. Yeah, it's a real popular one. And I was going to click on it and I didn't click on it. So now I know what it's about. <laughs> yep. I was like, I was going to click on that one. The designer lie made me want to hit it. So the lie that it, those things really have no more value. It's just society has placed that value on them. Or some marketer just says marketer. it's worth more because we put a bigger price tag on it. And so rich people will buy it. And then everybody else, even if they don't have money, goes broke to buy it. That's exactly it. I, I mean, it's if at some point that is something, a goal of yours, a measurable... Absolutely. But for majority 
of folks, it's maybe we could pull back on when we obtain those goods a little bit, you know, kind of wait for that a little bit later in your career. Like once you kind of got the snowball rolling, once you started investing and saving for retirement and got those things squared away, like you, if you want to reach for those goods, by all means, but it's when we do it kind of early, early on in our careers or at a point where we can't really afford it, and we, but we want to project this image of success that you end up in trouble. I mean, right, you want to talk about consumer debt in America. That's certainly very, very much uh, an issue. So do you have any tips on how people can get out of debt? Uh, in terms of getting out of debt, yeah, I mean, there's, so I guess there's two approaches to it. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just wondering. I'm sorry I just wrote it out there to you, but I'm like, you just said there's tons of consumer debt. And I was like, well, do you have a tip for us? Yeah, um, I can kind of, I'll talk about it broadly from, I guess, the credit card angle, because I get a lot of those questions, right? So a couple ways to, to manage it. Um, one, you can either go through either the snowball or the avalanche approach. And so while uh, one of the approaches, you basically are going to tackle your high interest rate debt first, not the absolute balance, but you want to tackle the debt that has the highest interest rate because that's going to cost you the most over time. So even though you might have, let's say, a credit card debt of $10,000 at uh, 15% interest rate, but you might have another credit card at $1,000 at 20% interest rate, um, one school of thought is tackle the high interest rate first because you'll save more money over the long run. Um, another approach, and this is kind of the snowball approach, is you start with whatever the smallest amount is and kind of work your way up, regardless of what the interest rate is. I think from a total, from a math perspective, you should obviously always tackle highest interest. But from a psychology perspective, some people just need to get going with a little bit, a little bit, and then you, as you scale, scale up. Those are kind of the broad approaches to debt. And then with credit cards, one one thing you could look at is something like a personal loan right? As long as if you consolidate to a personal loan that that interest rate is lower then obviously all the different aggregated loans that you would have been pulling into that one. And if your credit score is good enough, another way is to do a balance transfer. So say you have a credit card, you have high interest on that card, um, you have a pretty decent balance, you can go and open a card that has 0% interest, do a balance transfer from the uh, high interest card to a 0% interest card, um, and then start tackling it that way. So at least you're not getting charged an arm and a leg. So you talk about credit cards. Which credit card do you think is the best out there for people to use if you're wanting to travel? I mean, do you have a travel card that you really like? And do you have any type of credit card hacks that you might have for us that maybe you can share? Yeah. Um, as far as credit cards right now, the hottest card on the market, bar none. Here's the thing. It's going to depend. However, I would say broadly for a lot of folks, the most value right now on the marketplace the Capital One Venture X. They're not paying me to say this. This is just the card that's right now. I can't believe this offer is out there. So the Capital One Venture X is what I would call a top tier uh, travel card. So it's going to get you things like the airport lounge access. It's going to get you things like expedited security. It's going to get you things like expedited entry back into the United States. Um, what it also does is it comes with a $395 annual fee, which for a lot of folks, that's scary. That seems like when a lot. Yeah, it's, it's really scary and it's, oh, my, why would I pay for an annual fee? However, whenever I look at credit cards, it's all about what's the cost, what's the benefit? Okay, $395 annual fee, that's pretty high. What am I getting out of this? Well, you get a $300 travel credit if you book travel using the Capital One travel portal. And then you get a $100, um, why is it escaping me right now? A $100 anniversary credit every year for having the card. So every year you will get $400 of credits, but yet you will pay a $395 annual fee 
you're net positive $5. It, it, it's just right now, I don't know how that is a thing, but it's a thing because this card competes with the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which is $550. It competes with the American Express Platinum, which is uh, $695. And yet this card with the benefits associated, you get back $5. Now, how many flights and things do you get for free and upgrades do you get usually with your cards in a year? So, yeah, it, it kind of depends. Um, I haven't flown a ton, but in 2018, and 2018, actually, I think I entirely flew all on credit card points and miles. I mean, you can stretch miles a ton of different ways, especially if we think about um, folks, if you want to do kind of luxury redemptions, right? I could say there's two credit cards you can open. And you'd basically be able to fly a $20,000 first class flight and you'd probably pay less than $100 in taxes and fees. What? <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Yeah, I need to know about this because I had, I did, I tried to upgrade the other day and it was too expensive for me. So I was yeah. like, oh, and it was like going to be a long flight. So I was like, I needed to have a better seat, but see, I needed the right card and I could have upgraded is what you're telling me. Yeah, the right card. Or sometimes, like, I, I always, when I'm from flying international, especially, yeah. um, I, I'll just go up to the counter. Like, once the once it feels like people are done checking in, we're about aboard, and I don't know what the hit rate is, maybe around 50%, maybe lower, I would just go up and quite literally just ask, hey, you know, agent, if I, they have a name tag, I'll read it. And, and I'll say, you know, how, how is the plane looking? Are, are we full at capacity? Something to that effect. And they'll usually say something back. I'm like, oh, is it possible if I could just move a little bit further up in the plane and i've gotten delta and hawaiian airlines to move me from what was economy to premium economy just by asking is the plane full and if it's not do you mind moving me forward a little bit um, did it cost you no it was free they're like yeah sure we'll move you up and that's it it's just a harmless little ask and that's actually it's funny it's kind of a motto i have for a lot of folks you don't get what you don't ask for and so you know you could don't 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 go up there demanding it just like oh hey is the plane full it's not do you mind if, uh, would you mind moving me a little bit forward? That's it. That's it. So you didn't, then you didn't tell me what card was it that you said that you were able to do luxury travel? Which one uh, was good with that? So it depends on what, if you want to do that specific flight, I used a Bank of America, Alaska Airlines card. And now this is going to go deep. So I hope your listeners are following along. So what I flew was a Cathay Pacific flight, but I used Alaska Airlines miles. In the world of credit card travel and maximizing um, for benefits, you want to use airline award charts and partner transfers. So I used Alaska Airlines miles to book a Cathay Pacific flight because it only cost me 70,000 Alaska Airlines miles. However, it would have cost me 90,000 Cathay Pacific miles, even though I was flying a Cathay Pacific flight. I hope, I hope that made sense. So because they're partners, so, so, so I could use mm -hmm. Alaska miles to book for Cathay and Alaska was a better value than actually going directly with Cathay. And yeah, that flight was absolutely incredible. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and it was it, free, completely free uh, points. Taxes and fees, like less than a hundred bucks as opposed to having to pay at that, at that point, it was like, I think it was like 18 or $20,000 if I just paid cash. And there's no way. And at no point, whether I retire today, tomorrow, when I'm 40, I would never pay that in cash. However, using the right points and miles, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's anything too, too crazy. Another, I'll give you another good one. Um, right now you can fly, if you've ever wanted to go to the Maldives, right? You know, stay at those overwater villas, you can fly on Qatar Airways business class. And 
it is an incredible, incredible business class where you can literally form a double bed with the two business class seats kind of in the sky. So if you're traveling with a partner, I mean, it's just such a cool experience. So I think cash value flying from East Coast of the Americas over into the Maldives, like that region is like between five to $8,000. You could use American Airlines miles, 70,000 one way. And I think we paid $28 per person tax and fee. So again, less than a hundred bucks. Oh yeah. (laughs) So it is worth looking at these points and getting the points and playing with the different credit cards to do these type of things we want to do that we could never do if we weren't doing it. Right. So I love it when I hear these things. And then I love how you said um, how to get things for free at the hotels. I don't know if it had a lot of views, but I clicked on it and I thought that was genius how you said to go call early, a week early and say, hey, um, like, tell me the words exactly how to say it, John. Yeah. Like for me, it's something to the effect of, hey, you know, XYZ hotel. Hey, you know, my partner, we're going to be in the city next next week or two weeks from now. It's our first time in the city. It would be great, you know, if we could have a little something special in the room. And like, you just leave it up to them to decide. And they they don't say, oh, that will be $100, $500. No, no, no. You just, you kind of leave it. You kind of leave it like, oh, it'd be great. And you can also kind of play play it off as, oh, I want, I I love to surprise my partner with something special in the room, if you guys wouldn't mind. Um, And usually, you know, you might get anywhere from chocolates. I've seen people get like a little stuffed teddy bear. Um, I've gotten bottles of champagne. And again, you don't need to have status. Just be a nice human and make a small ask of, hey, it's our first time. Can you surprise my partner with a, something special in the room or surprise us with something special. Um, and same, same thing with upgrades too, right? Like at the time of check-in, hey, is there any chance? Ask nicely. I think that's the one thing you just said. The best thing to do is just ask. You never know what you can get by just asking. I think so many people are afraid to look cheap maybe by asking or they're, I, I don't know why they're afraid, but I'm actually going to ask. I'm going to try this out, John. Yes. I am going to try it. I'm going on a trip in a couple of weeks and I'm going to call those, ask those hotels probably on Monday yeah. and see if I can get something for free in the room. I will let you know yes. if it works. I will yes. let you know if it works. Oh, that would be awesome. I mean, that motto extends for things like credit card late fees, for example. Most people don't know this. When you get charged a late fee on a credit card payment, I don't want to say 10 out of 10 because no one can ever guarantee it, but 9.999 out of 10 times, if you just pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm so sorry, you know, I missed a late fee because of X, Y, Z reason, they will waive it. Like I've gotten, (laughs) admittedly, I've gotten a one-time courtesy fee waiver like two or three times in one year. Now that, I I don't recommend you miss credit card payments. That's not good. But sometimes if things get busy and you miss it, you don't have to just accept the late fee. Just pick up the phone and make a small ask. Or for things like your internet bill or your cell phone bill is getting expensive. You can also just pick up a phone and say, hey, th- this bill is getting expensive because you know how they always get you in with the introductory yeah. and they crank it. Guys, this is getting really expensive. Is there any chance we could potentially reduce, reduce what at the, whatever the, that fee is? So yeah, just ask. And then John, how do you decide what you're going to do on your videos each week? And why did you even, so why did you start doing this? Was it purely for income stream and how did you become so popular? I mean, I asked you a couple of questions there, but if you could answer all of them. It'd be great. Yeah. So I guess we could go back to why I even started this. So back at the beginning, January of 2021, I got together with some college friends and we ended up renting an Airbnb in upstate New Hampshire. And there was 
two other couples besides my girlfriend and I. So, so three couples. And you know, part of that trip, we just had started having a conversation about setting goals. And we had a conversation, you know what, why don't we as a group collectively set some goals for us for 2021, right? We were just kind of coming out of the pandemic and we hadn't really seen each other. I was like, okay, that's, I don't know if I'm, I fully buy into goal setting because I've really never done it. And I was like, I don't know how much weight that this, this is going to hold over, but okay, I'm in. And so we go around in a circle and everyone kind of states goals. And this is really cool because it wasn't just, you know, I want to make more money. It was People wanted to get promotions. People wanted to purchase homes. People had fitness goals. I mean, it was really, really incredible. And when it came to me, I was like, well, I've always been interested in making content. Okay, my goal is to start a YouTube channel and I'm gonna make some videos. So that's cool. And we documented it. Like there's an Excel sheet and someone was, yeah, we had, it was very, very formal. Um, And then we wrote down all of our different goals and and then that's it. And then we kind of went on our separate ways. And I was like, well, we then after that decided, okay, well, we need to hold ourselves accountable. So we had a half year check-in where we all went out to San Diego to kind of hang out, but also kind of review our goals. And so for me, I was like, well, I'm not going to be the guy that shows up and I didn't do anything. And so because of that, I made one video every week from, I think it was maybe February to April. And then I went two videos a week from April to like June of I am doing it, A, I'm interested, but also there's a bit of an external pressure that I don't want to show up to this next hangout and say, oh, I didn't do anything. And it was really, really cool when we all regrouped again halfway through the year where folks who wanted to get promotions got promotions. People who were looking to buy homes bought homes. I mean, it was just so cool. And for me, I was like, yeah, like, you know, I started the YouTube channel and I went from zero to like, I don't know, maybe it was a couple hundred uh, subscribers only at that point but it was growth and it was really motivating and encouraging to kind of see that. And then from there on out, um, I had a friend suggest to me that even YouTube is a little slow, why don't you consider TikTok? And to me, I was like, ah, well, TikTok, I don't know if I could dance, like, is this really what I want to do? And she was like, no, no, you don't have to dance, you can just, uh, you can just make content, like, regularly. I was like, well, what does that mean? So she sent me this video from a really big uh, TikToker, his name's Humphrey, um, Humphrey Talks, and mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, Oh, I could, I could do something like that. And so I think I made a couple videos on credit cards. They got way more traction than most of my YouTube videos. And I guess kind of the rest, the rest is history. Um, I started making, I'd say daily. And then at one point I was doing three to five videos a day. I think October, November, I was doing three to five videos a day. Um, With your job? Just, yeah, it was, yeah, it was nine to five, get off and just make, make content. Yeah, that was incredible. But so that, does your girlfriend help you with this? Yeah, so she she's an accountant. So she takes care of all she takes care of the uh, the AR, the accounts receivable, I like to joke, and, and the invoicing. Um, no, <laughs> she's been she's been super supportive through through all of this. Definitely, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be able to handle all of those things on the back end, especially without her help. So and then you just come up with different I mean, you have to create so much content. I have no idea how you decide what to create. It's the do you just go off trending topics or things that you're interested in or what do you do? So a lot of topics that I thought actually did pretty well, if I might say so myself, being selfishly, were just things that I've always kind of preached to to my friend group, like things to do with like credit card hacks, things to do like the diamond thing. Like that's something I've told people just I've just socialized in my group and I just felt like people got sick of it. So uh, there's another one with Ray-Bans, right? Like Ray-Bans used to be dollar store sunglasses before Luxottica, this this eyewear conglomerate brought, bought them in the 80s and rebranded them to a luxury eyewear. Um, eyewear, Yeah, so a lot of these 
tidbits, I would say like we're kind of always back here. And then now I just had a place to, to, um, to obviously spread the knowledge too. And then now it's more of a, yeah, kind of what's trending. And then how do you make a kind of a more evergreen content around what might be, what might be trending. But yeah, I mean, as far as research, it's just, you're walking, you're in the shower, you're in the car and just something kind of hits. And for me, I always try to think of how can I tell this in a way that the audience will say, huh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't think about it in that way because if I just go on and talk about inflation, that's boring. It's, it's, a, it's a dense topic and how do you do it kind of in, in a light way? Yeah. You play two parts. There's yeah. John and then there's the other John. <laughs> in the video i like it's like you got two personality you're, you're talking to yourself but you know maybe you change your jacket is that it i was thinking maybe the jacket changes we have a vest a puffy vest yeah. on one and then you have a shirt on the other <laughs> yep it, it was funny um i was talking with the creator the other day and i had the vest on because i was a little cold and he was like oh are you getting ready to shoot content i was like no this is just my wardrobe i wish i wish it was for the characters like this is just this is what i wear <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing special here. <laughs> oh, I thought you probably have wardrobe. You're getting, you're filling out. What are we, what should I do? What should this character wear today? Cause I know you have like, you're the boss, then you're yes. the banker, then you're this, and then you're that. So if you folks, if you haven't watched John on TikTok or on his YouTube, you need to check it out. It's pretty awesome. And I always like to ask people before we go is what does live richer mean to you, John? Um, Want to share something with us when it comes to what does live richer mean? Yeah, I would say for me, richer, I think of richer and wealth kind of similarly. Um, and when I think of kind of obviously attaining wealth, it's it's ultimately freedom, right? It's when we think of kind of how the other half lives, it's getting out of a position that finances are a stress. And when finances are no longer a stress, I think you have more time to think and do what it is that you want to. And so that would that would be it for me. Like the, the definition for me is looking to attain a state of, of freedom, if you will, whether that, and you, you can obtain that, you know, while working your regular nine to five job. It doesn't have to be this, oh, I think people always get caught up, like, you know, in order to, to, to do this and have freedom, I, I need to quit my job and start this side hustle. Like, no, not, not at all, really. Um, it really is just getting to a place where I think you've got the time, the time and obviously the, the money to do what it is that, that you want. I really like that. And I think that's true. Being able to do what we want when we want is a huge sense of freedom and it helps us to live a more richer life. And thanks for what you're doing, John. It, not only is it entertaining, it's actually truly helpful. And I think it's helping a lot of people to get out of debt, to travel. And like I said, do the things that they really want to do and ultimately will bring them the most happiness. And like I said, you're brave to go out there, John, on TikTok and create content like that. And you don't see it all the time and you're doing an awesome job of it. And I thank you for that. And I want to remind our listeners to always to do one thing, and that is to live richer. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you go, we'd love for you to subscribe to our show to catch all of our updates. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your burning questions about money and how to live your best life? Reach us at liverecherpod at gobankingrates.com. Hi, I'm Paul Deere, Vice President of Advisory Service at Personal Capital. And this month, we're focusing on tips for navigating the stock market's ups and downs. Recently, investors have experienced relatively significant market volatility. Market ups and downs should be expected, though that doesn't mean it's easy to stomach. So what can you do? 
First off, knee-jerk reactions to market events like this are rarely good for your financial strategy. So stay disciplined. Ask yourself this, has your investment philosophy changed? If so, why? Knee-jerk reactions driven by either fear or greed are rarely to an investor's benefit. Make decisions based on facts, not emotions. Globally diversified portfolios can help investors ride through periods of market turmoil successfully, so consider your portfolio's diversification as a significant factor in allowing you to remain disciplined.